Father God, we just lift up this next few minutes, Lord, as we just look at your word and uh, look at your church, Father God. We pray that you would open our hearts. And Lord, even if we're not sure what we believe this morning, uh, that you might just show, Lord, that actually this organization, this institution, as some might see it as, Father, is far more uh, wonderful, far more magnificent, far more unexpected, Lord, um, far more useful to society than some would have us think. Lord, you died for your church, and Lord, we are your people. Lord, we are the ones who are your ambassadors called to go out and change this world. And so, Father, as we just think now about church, that, Lord, we would be challenged, we'd be encouraged, we'd be equipped and filled with your spirit to do just that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's exam season, isn't it? So a lot of people have uh, just received their results. And um, actually, it must be terrible, actually, to be a parent of a, a teenager at 16. And this is a serious point, by the way. Because all over Facebook, all you ever see is how wonderfully well everybody else's kids have done. And, uh, and so let me start, actually. Uh, and I don't know if anyone here has got anyone that didn't do as well as I expected. It doesn't matter. It's not the end of the world if you fail a few exams. It may not be your plan A. It may not even be your plan B. But I have a God who can make plans C's and D's and E's and S's and G's out of the worst mistakes and the most unexpected results. And so if you didn't get what you were expecting to get, don't think that your life is over. Because actually some of the greatest people on planet Earth have been people who have failed at the very beginning of their lives. And they've learnt resilience and passion and they've discovered actually what they should be doing wasn't what they thought they should be doing. And so it must be a terrible time of year for everybody. But exam results have come through. And, uh, and there's a whole generation of breathing a sigh of relief and uttering the phrase, never again. And then they realize uni starts in September or October time, I'm not really sure. Anyway, uh, apparently I was looking up the hardest question, the hardest exam that you'd ever have to take. And apparently the entrance exam to the Fellowship to All Souls College of Oxford is considered the hardest exam ever. Now, some of you are clever. Sorry. All of you are clever. Um, I didn't mean to say some of you. A couple of you are clever. Anyway, and, uh, and the reason it's so hard is because the questions are abstract. It is impossible to revise for, and there are no right or wrong answers. And so I'm going to pick on a few people who I think are up for the challenge. Dave Tucker, you're up for the challenge, aren't you? Let me just ask you a question. You can come up here. Let's come up here. I don't know why you're laughing. One of you is going to have it. Let me ask you a question. I don't know why I was going to cover it over then, but there's no answer, is there? <laughs> Um, answer the question, and you can just boo if you think he's talking rubbish, uh, talking non... No, anyway. Um, should intellectuals tweet? Come on. I think intellectuals should not tweet. Why? Because the amount of words that you can put into a tweet is not suitable for an intellectual. Anyone disagree? Jennifer disagrees, that's good. Anyone disagree and boom, boom, it's okay. No, I see. No, I see, okay. Okay, let's have some, Mark, you're, you're a clever chap. Um, come on, let me ask, let me, I'll give you a statement. Secure people dare, do they? Not always. <sighs> you're not going to boo that? <laughs> let's have somebody else, who else looks... That's quite clever. It looks quite clever. Let me see. Um, everyone's doing that, aren't they? Oh, heavens. Heavens. <laughs> heavens. Um, who does who, Just put out you really hate coming up the front. <laughs> no, okay. Fair enough. Uh, no, I should pick female. No, no. Re- Rebecca? <laughs> now, you know what? The mistake you made was looking at your husband, trying to act like I hadn't seen you. This is, I'll give you an easy one. 
Ready? We'll probably stop after this. Ready? It's quite a long question. Can the substantive disagreement... Sorry, let me start again. Can there be substantive disagreement in the absence of fact? And you can't just give a one-word answer like Kimber over there. Jerry, again. This, oh. this, this question needs, needs a bit of translation. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's quite a hard question. No, I can't translate it. <laughs> can there be substantive disagreement in the absence of fact? You can say pass. I think, <laughs> I think this is... Um, I think people often disagree um, over things that are definitely not fact. So, yeah, I think there can be. I have no idea what you just said. but That wasn't a clever answer. I think you should clap that. <laughs> Especially as half of us are thinking, oh, yeah, it must be right because I didn't understand it. <laughs> so, but well done, we'll stop there. Now, um, we set ourselves a question, an equally seemingly easy question, but actually turns out to be quite a hard question. To kick off the next year, this academic year, we've set ourselves a question, what would Jesus do at Sawbridgeworth Evangelical Congregational Church? If you're new to the church, I apologise for the name of this church. It's very long, it's very hard, so we've squashed it down to S-E-C-C. So what would Jesus do at S-E-C-C? And, uh, and I've been pondering it on my holidays in the last couple of days, and I just thought to myself a couple of days ago, what a crazy question to ask. What a question to ask. What would Jesus do if he was here? Of course he is here. He's on his throne in heaven. He, we're in Christ, and Christ is in us. But he's with us. If he was physically in charge of this church, um, what would Jesus do? And that's a tough question, isn't it? And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, not only is it a hard question, because on the one hand, Jesus didn't actually say a great deal he said lots about the church but Jesus didn't actually say to us oh by the way have membership have a building and when you have a building make sure that you have a little creation on Sunday mornings do that he didn't say any of that some of the structural stuff that we uh, and the strategic uh, things like roles and direction those kinds of things Jesus didn't really tell us how to run a church he told us what church should be about. So it's actually quite a hard question. And the other thing that struck me was actually, wouldn't this be a really easy question to abuse? Now, I could stand up here, couldn't I? And I could list all the things that SECC does week by week. We do this and we do that. I could tell you all the things that we believe in, all of our leanings theologically and stylistically, and I could then shoehorn Jesus into all of it, couldn't I? And that would be an abuse of that question. This is what we do. Let's make it seem like Jesus is 100% on our side. And perhaps over the last two millennia, the church has made that mistake from time to time. Actually, it's the other way around, isn't it? We should be saying, this is what Christ is like. How does the church measure up to his perfect example? So I wonder how you would answer it. Um, I was going to say turn to the person next to you, but we won't do that. Um, I wonder how you would answer it. How would Jesus run this church? One thing you know is he would run it unexpectedly. Because whenever Jesus was asked a question, he never quite gave the answer you thought he was going to give. My favorite story is when he's presented with a woman caught in adultery. And they give him those two options, both equally bad in terms of the fallout with the people around him. And they think, we've got him. And what does Jesus say? Those who are without sin cast the first stone. He found, finds his third option, and I think it's brilliant. I love the way Jesus is never caught out and always knows what to say. So if Jesus was in charge, literally, uh, he would do something unexpected. That's for certain, isn't it? 
But before we get on to that, let me ask a question. What is church? And for some of you, you're thinking, I know what church is. But what is church? How would you answer that question? If someone said to you, what is the church? I wonder what you might say this morning. Some of you perhaps would say, well, this is the church. The building that we sit in, stand in Sunday by Sunday, that is the church. People say to us, I'm coming to your church next Sunday to mean the building. But is that the church? No. Some of you may say, well, this is the church. We're doing church. People often say, don't they, we're going to have some church here this morning. We never say that. It's a shame. I think we should say that. We'll start saying that next Sunday. But people talk about having some joy, having church, because the service is church, isn't it? That's what some people say, we're having a church service. Maybe you might say, well, it's not the church service. It's the church service plus my connect group and where I serve. But actually, um, church isn't any of those things. They're expressions of what church is. In Greek, the word church comes from a Greek word, ecclesia or ecclesia. And that word in Greek simply means assembly or gathering, as in a gathering of people. And it literally means the called out ones. The church is neither the building nor its activities. The building is a gathering of people who believe in Jesus Christ and who have been called out of something into something and you might ask well what have we been called out of what have we been called into well Ephesians chapter 2 puts it very clearly when Paul writes about a kingdom of darkness that we're in before we know Christ and a kingdom of light that we're in once we know Jesus Christ actually what happens when you become a Christian when you repent of your sin turn from your sin is you're called out of death out of darkness out of a kingdom that is dark into the kingdom of of God. I'd like to read a few verses from Ephesians 2. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised, up, uh, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do God's work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The church is every man, woman, or child who has left a life in the wrong kingdom, follows Jesus Christ as a king of kings, who has been called out of a life that is wrong, that is bound by sin and death, and now has been made alive with Christ, living in the kingdom of light. And actually what the church therefore is, is a collection of every believer who has ever lived, every tribe, every tongue, every gender, male and female, but also it includes those who have believed in the past and the present and the future. Last weekend, I had the privilege of going to something called the One Event. Um, there was only one event um, in the Lincoln Showground. And we, in the big top, they had the big service. It was brilliant. 
There were about three to 4,000 people. And I love at those events looking around to see just who's there. And you see every type of human being possible. Every shape, every size, every height, every uh, nationality, every age. It's brilliant. I look around and I just think it's a little glimpse of heaven. Because you think everybody's there. And it's awesome. I love it. And it makes me want to cry because I'm a little bit emotional. I can't help it. But it's wonderful. But that's what the church is. It's not the building. It's not the activities. It's that gathering of all those who have been called out of death into life. But it's more in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 17. We read of the church, Paul writes, as being like a body. A body with many different parts. The Lazarus has already mentioned to us, which is brilliant. Um, he says, if the whole body were an eye... Where would the sense of hearing be? The body of Christ, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. The church is all of us together. We're the body of Christ because we're in Christ. And Ephesians 1, and 23 tells us that Christ is the head of this collection of people. But it is also like a building as well. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 5, Peter describes this gathering of people, these called out ones, as being like a building that God is building together. We're doing a building project in this church, or the start of one, but God is on a spiritual building project, and every single one of you and every single one of us is a part of those, that building project. He writes, Peter, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering the spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, oh, Jesus Christ. And I love it, because this gathering, these called out ones, every single one of us, Peter writes, is like a rock, a rock that God just puts in the right place. And actually, there's a real sense of value there, isn't there? Some of you that stood up, you may occasionally think to yourself, well, I don't do very much. I'm not in a high-profile ministry like that person over there, and I'm never at the front, and so maybe I'm not as important as the rest of the church. Or maybe you think, well, I did something years ago, but actually, whatever you do, and if you do it for the King of Kings, you take your place in the wall in that building that he is building. And it doesn't matter what you do or how often you do it, if you do it with the right heart for the glory of God, we are all like a brick in the wall. And I love it, because if you start taking bricks out of walls, what happens? The whole thing collapses. God's building a spiritual house and every single one of us plays our part. That's what the church is. Bricks in God's temple. The gathering of God's called out people, the body of Christ. It's time for a joke. It does involve toilets. To be fair, you've missed me. And maybe you'll miss me at the end of this. A woman, a rather old-fashioned lady, uh, was planned to take a few weeks uh, vacation over in Florida. And, uh, and she, as she was getting ready to go to this campground, um, she wanted to ask about the uh, facilities. Um, she was quite delicate and eloquent uh, with her language. And she was trying to write a letter to the campground to ask um, whether it had the right facilities. And she couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet. And so she wrote three or four drafts. Does it have this? Oh, she can't, can't write it. She couldn't write the word toilet. So in the end, she settled with the phrase bathroom commode. She felt that adequately expressed it. And as she came to write the letter again, she couldn't write even bathroom commode. And so she wrote BC. 
She thought, surely he'll understand. So she sent the letter to the campground. The campground owner, who wasn't old-fashioned at all, had no idea what she was on about. And he looked and he thought, what does BC mean? Where is the nearest BC? Is it good? Is it, is it well-managed? What happens? And he was quite confused. He was stumped for several days and he began to show his letter to other campers. And eventually someone said, well, hang on a minute. Maybe BC means Baptist church. And he thought, of course, there is a local Baptist church. That's what she's concerned about. And so he wrote a letter back to the woman, informing her where the local Baptist church was like and what it was like. And this is how the letter went. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite. (laughs) It gets worse. I'm really sorry. And he's capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly. But no doubt you'll be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive quite early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago. And it was... Actually, I don't think it's related at all. Um, and it was so crowded, we had to, <laughs> had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now there is a supper plan to raise money to buy more seats, which is good. They plan to hold the supper in the middle of the BC, so everyone <laughs> sorry, <clears throat> can watch and talk about this great event. We're nearly finished, so I'm really sorry. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but surely not for lack of desire on my part as we grow older. It seems to be more and more of an effort, particularly in the cold weather. If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time you go to sit with you, introduce, (laughs) introduce you to the other folks. It really is a friendly community. Like I said, I don't actually think that's remotely related. (laughs) But all the things he said about church were true. And isn't it a wonderful thing? (laughs) Um, I'm now thinking, why did I tell that joke after all? You know why? It made me laugh. And I thought, it's nice to kick off a year. So you don't realise anything's changed in the last couple of weeks. (laughs) But let's go back to the question about church. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he ran Sorbridge Congregational Evangelical Church? Sorry, Evangelical Congregational Church. And it is a hard question. Like we say, the New Testament doesn't give us all the details of running church that we would love. We would love to know, do that, do that, do that. And we're not told that. We're given principles. We're given some teaching. But so perhaps a good place to start is what did Jesus do? If you want to know whether the church is doing right, you need to go back to the master, the first one, the original, the king of kings. What he did is what we ought to do. It's such a temptation to become an organization, isn't it? And make our own way. In fact, I heard of a church. I won't say where it is, but it's not in Sorbridge or, or Stortford or anywhere like that. But they've had a church split. And do you know why they had a church split? They had a church split because the minister came up with a radical new idea that they should make all their decisions based on the Bible. And they had to present it to the congregation, so entrenched with their problems in this church, that they ended up having a vote. And it went through 60-40. Can you believe it? That would never happen in this church, would it? We'd never get so entrenched in our traditions and our way of doing things 
that we lost sight of the Bible, would we? Of course not. But Jesus is our measure. Jesus is the answer to that question. What would Jesus do at SECC? There is no fancy, flowery answer. We go back to his life. We're told in Matthew 11, Jesus says, learn from me. In Luke 9, 23, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. We're supposed to be like Christ. In John 14, Jesus says something even more amazing. Verse 12, he says this. Hang on. Very truly, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So actually, we learn from Jesus. We take up our cross and we become like Jesus. In the first century, people would pick a rabbi that they liked the teaching of. And you know what they would do? They would just follow him around all day long. Where he sat, they sat. Where he ate, they ate. When he slept, they slept. When he walked, they walked. In the end, they were just like him. They were his disciples and they were identical because they followed him to the letter of the law every minute of every day. And we're called to follow our teacher, our rabbi, our saviour, our king. And if this church is ever going off track, it's because we no longer follow the real rabbi. We follow another voice or another trend or another um, decision. Those early Christians were called Christians, weren't they? In Antioch, as an insult, you're Christians. And it ended up being the most wonderful compliment you could ever give someone. Thank you. Of course, I'm a Christian. You're so much like Christ, you're a Christian. Yes, thank you. Somebody said to me once, when I used to go running, and, uh, and he said to me, you don't believe in all that virgin birth nonsense, do you? And I said, yeah. He said, do you? And I said, yeah, I'd be a weird Christian if I didn't. I said, and for that record, I also believe in the resurrection as well. He ran a bit faster than me. <laughs> but we're called to be like Jesus Christ in everything we think, everything we do, and everything we say. We're supposed to be his ambassadors. When an ambassador comes over from another country to, to visit Britain, we, they represent their country, they represent their king or their prime minister or whoever's in, or their president. They're the exact representation of the person and the place they've come from. And that's what the church He's supposed to be. So I open the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and it's not the word cloud because that's just exciting, isn't it? Anyway, and, uh, and some of the things I'm about to say. But if you skip through the Gospel of Mark, and actually, this is the measure for this church, isn't it? This is the measure for this church. What did Jesus do? In chapter 1, verse 9, you can't read that on there, I'm sorry. I couldn't get the rest of the words to be bigger. I tried for about five minutes. Um, what did Jesus do? That's the answer to our question. In chapter 1, verse 9, he resisted temptation. He resisted temptation and the devil. Isn't that the church's role? To resist temptations that come in? Temptations will come, the Bible says, lots of them. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. We're supposed to resist him and fight him off with scripture and prayer. In 1.14 of Mark, Jesus preached the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. That's our job, isn't it? To go out and tell people, there's another kingdom. You're in this kingdom of darkness, it's broken, it's not knowing really who you are or what you're doing or what happens when you die, but you can come out of that and come into a new kingdom where you know everything about you who you are, what the whole point of this life is, and what happens when you finally get your final minute of life. And you needn't be scared of that final second because you're in a kingdom that lasts forever. In 121, Jesus fought darkness and evil. He cast out demons. Wow, we don't ever talk about demonic uh, possession, do we? We never talk about casting out evil, but it still happens. But we're a bit more westernized, and so we don't talk about that sort of thing, but it happens. 
But evil should be frightened of us because evil is a real thing. He healed the sick. The church should be healing the sick through acts of service and love and grace, of course, but literally as well. We should be unashamedly praying for healing for people. And if it doesn't happen, then we put that into the context of the Bible and explain. But we should be praying for the sick. We should be loving the broken. In 135 of Mark, Jesus prayed. He went out early in the morning to a quiet place and prayed. The church should be a house of prayer. Spurgeon referred to his, his prayer room as the boiler room or the boiler house. And before every service, hundreds of people would come first downstairs and they would pray and pray and pray because they wanted God to move and move and move. So I'll see you at 7 o'clock this evening. In chapter 2, verse 1, he taught people and showed people God's forgiveness of sin. Isn't this people's greatest need? How many people are carrying baggage from the past? When I was 15, I did this. When I was 18, I did that. When I was 22, I did that. When I was 30, I did that. When I was 45, I said this. And it's dogged me my entire life. I can't drop this stuff. And I'm just pretending that I'm all right, but I'm not all right. Don't people need to hear that Christ can take that off you and wash you clean? He associated with the least. He was often found in the presence of sinners, in his, uh, and he was ridiculed for it. Shouldn't the church be open to all? I heard a story of a vicar who dressed as a homeless man, and he went to his parish church where he'd been vicar for many years, and he went in covered in all sorts, smelly, dirty. He was loud, and he went and he sat down to see whether his congregation would actually practice what he preached, and not one of them did. And then he took all of the stuff off to reveal it was him underneath it all. The Bible says that we, when we care for people, sometimes we even entertain angels. Think of that. That's quite something, isn't it? He associated with the least. The church should associate with the least. In the past, the church has been the forerunner for social change. Where the history is being rewritten now, isn't it? To airbrush out the effect of Christians and the church in the benefit of Western society. Don't let that happen. Because Western society is where it is today because God's people practice God's ways and preach the gospel and love the unlovable. Almost every major reform has come because a Christian has been involved. He challenged religious oppression and hypocrisy. He taught people the truth about God. He opened the door to heaven. He sent people into the world. The church should be sending people out. Sending people not just onto the mission field, but off to work on Monday morning. Go to work and tell people about Jesus and do this. We should be sending people into a greater degrees of faith and effectiveness. He fed the hungry. He fed the hungry. We do make lunch here, don't we, every uh, Wednesday of every half term. And I only mention that because it's directly related to that, but... There's a joy of helping people practically. And this church helps people in other ways. He loved the foreigner. He loved the foreigner. There was no nationalistic side. Sometimes our American friends, um, sometimes in some churches, get a bit American first, Jesus second. Only in some places. But it's Christ first. And there's no tribe or tongue. There's no male or female. We are one in Christ. Nationality is second. We love the foreigner, we love the person who was born in this country. We don't really care because all are special in Christ. He opened the eyes of people physically but also spiritually. He taught a radical new set of kingdom values. He gave his life for the kingdom of God and the salvation of others and he rose again. He is our model, isn't he? Isn't he the answer to our question? And we're supposed to arrange ourselves so that we can be like Christ in every way. 
And there's a couple more things that Jesus did before he died, before he rose again and went back to heaven. The first thing he did, we're told in Ephesians 5.25, is that he loved the church. In Ephesians 5.25, says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Coming here should be our highest privilege because it cost Jesus' life for you to enter the front door. It is our highest privilege. He loved the church. If he was here bodily, we would know his love dynamically. He established the church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, what does Jesus say? He says about hell and about the powers of darkness and about his church. And he says this. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I heard a wonderful thing uh, by somebody uh, ages ago about this verse, because we tend to see it as about defensive, don't we? We, we? We're established and we kind of do that, and hell comes and we just sort of hope for the best. But actually, gates don't move, do they? That image actually is of darkness being over there and the church knocking its gates down. We're called to knock the hell out of earth aren't we? We're called to knock the hell out of people. And that's what that verse is about. Christ is establishing his church. This church has been here over 200 years, but the church has been on earth for 2,000, and it is not going anywhere. He fills it with his Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're going to be witnesses, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, because we're going to be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us on high. In chapter 2, the Spirit of God fell on the church. And we're to be spirit-filled believers. If Christ was here, he would fill us with his spirit and send us out. And then finally, he commissions us. The great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And I love the fact that in uh, the great commission, the word in Greek for go is simply go. We love a Greek word, don't we? Or the Greek could mean this, or it could mean that, it could mean that. That word go just means go. And I think if Jesus was here, he'd probably say to each one of us, why are you still here? Why, why haven't you gone? People need to know my love and my death and my resurrection. And so we don't know if Jesus would have members meetings on a Wednesday or a Thursday. We don't know if Jesus would prefer the OHP, old school, or the projector. We don't know if Jesus would prefer apple lilac on the wall or autumn peach. But what we do know is this. If he was here physically... He would expect us to love one another. He would expect us to show that love through prayer and support and by physically making sure not one of us was on the poverty line. He would expect us to have faith strong enough to move mountains, to stand on water and to rely on him for all of our needs. He would expect us to preach the gospel to all people in the power of the Holy Spirit. He would expect us to announce to this world that God's kingdom is coming and is growing and has come. He would expect us to be as holy as his Father in heaven is, to be men and women of integrity and grace. He would expect us to sit with the outcast despite the cost, to offer up our reputation so we could better love the ignored. He would expect us to be awake watching for his soon return. He would expect us to stand during hardships, to resist ungodliness where society normalizes it, to keep our first love as our best love, and to repent when we stray, to persevere in holiness and doctrine and to keep away from all sexual immorality. He would expect us to be on fire for him, not lukewarm, not going through the motions, because that's what we've always done, how we've done it. To know that we're his and he is ours, living to change the world. He would expect us to hear his knock on our hearts and open the door every single day. To be church is our highest calling. 
our highest privilege and joy. We are the called out ones. We are his ambassadors. And so as we start another academic year, let's do it following his teaching with fresh passion, listening for his voice with fresh clarity, and watching his example as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so let's be Christ at work. Let's be Christ at home. But more importantly, let's be Christ at church as well. Should we pray? Father God, we just lift up, Lord, your church in Sawbridgeworth. And Father God, we know we're not alone in this town. We pray for our friends down the road at Great Samaria's. Father, we pray for surrounding churches as well. We pray for every single one of us in this room. Lord, church is a strange old thing. Lord, sometimes it doesn't live up to all that you want it to be. And Father, for that, we ask your forgiveness. But Lord, we also know that you love to use the vulnerable. You love to use, Lord, what the world considers weak and unimportant to do great things for people's lives. We pray, Lord, that this church would go from strength to strength, not in a worldly sense, but in a godly sense. Raise up, Lord, a whole generation of Davids who have been overlooked, Lord, but in you, you see greatness in them for your kingdom. And Lord, we just commit all that we've said to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.